My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. Episode 2, An Interesting Life The musky sweet smell of peat moss and ferns, still damp from a September rain, grew even stronger as I opened the gate and climbed the soggy wooden stairs of this old familiar home. It had been twenty years since I last climbed these stairs, but the familiar sights and smells enveloped me in feelings of warmth, love, and the sense of safe stability I knew nowhere else on earth. My mum's younger sister, Aunt Kira, had lived in this home my entire life. My cousin Ariadna met me at the door, led me to the parlour, and whispered, Not too long, Buzz. She's weaker than she thinks. Waiting in the parlour, Aunt Kira patted the spot beside her, just as she had done on a sunny summer day fifty years before. Though the words were never spoken, we both knew why I was there, why I had booked the next available flight from New York to Vancouver, B.C. for one last chat with my beloved aunt. As children, we were only allowed in Aunt Kira's parlor on very special occasions, as in the opening scene of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite on Christmas Eve we children were marched in and stood in formation like nervous little wooden soldiers. After Mum and I sang our well-rehearsed Christmas duet, I was ordered back into formation with the other children. One by one, adult family and friends filed by, giving each of us three kisses on our cheeks, a pat on the head, and sometimes a small gift or a piece of chocolate, accompanied by a wink and a smile. Then it was off to bed, and Mum took me upstairs to tuck me in with the ominous warning that Santa couldn't come if we weren't sleeping. But a few minutes later, my cousin Mark came to get me, as well as his younger siblings, Ariadna and Andre, out of bed, and we all snuck back downstairs to hide behind the banister, watch our parents, and dream of the day we would be allowed to join in the family festivities. As an adult... The parlor seemed somehow more casual than I remembered, or maybe I was just less intimidated. The smoky bronze icon still kept watch from the corner of the ceiling. I feared the ornate crystal lamps would shatter if I walked too fast or spoke too loudly. Hand-carved Siberian scrimshaw and a Fabergé egg were still elegantly placed on a gold-leaf table with pallet lacquer boxes, and my favorite, the little forest animals carved from a beautiful translucent Ural stone. Ornately framed photographs of our grandmother with her family in their furs and finery touring Russia and China before the revolution were the last remnants of our family's imperial Russian past. The Persian rug of handwoven cashmere still tickled my toes through my stockings and made me smile just as it had when I was a little boy. One look in my aunt's kind, loving eyes, and, as I'm sure she intended, my mind raced back to that sunny summer day when we last sat together in this very spot some fifty years earlier. I must have been about eight or nine when Aunt Kira said she needed to speak with me, but I was surprised when she led me to the parlor, reached into her dress pocket to take out the ornamental gold key, and opened the French doors of beveled glass. She gently closed the doors behind us, sat on the old-fashioned divan, and motioned for me to sit beside her. I was a nervous and insecure child, but it wasn't possible to be nervous around Aunt Kira, 
even for me. Ankira can be described in two words, kindness and love. She put her hand on my knee and said, Now it's very important that you listen very carefully to me, Buzik, using the endearing Russian diminutive of my American nickname, Buzz. You are one of the lucky ones, one of the fortunate few in this world who has the opportunity to choose what kind of life you want to have. You have the ability to decide what future you will create for yourself. You were blessed with a spiritual gift to create the realities you choose. You're very intelligent, good-looking, and you are a member of an influential, much-admired family. Don't underestimate what doors your father's name can open for you, as long as you use them for good. The spiritual gift you have to manifest your future, use it wisely. Use it to be happy. Use it to help others. There are very few boys as lucky as you, very few who have an opportunity to choose their life, but you must decide now. You have to decide exactly what kind of life, what kind of world you will create for yourself. If you want to be fabulously rich, you're smart enough to make that happen. Do you want to be famous? With your looks and your voice, all you have to do is decide. Would you like to be an influential politician? You can be that too. Or you can choose a simple, happy life like mine. You would make a wonderful father, and any child would be lucky to have you as their dad. This was clearly the answer she wanted to hear, and if I had taken that road, there would have been no better example to follow. But I was just a little boy suddenly drunk with power who instantly knew my answer. I want an interesting life. I want to be part of history, maybe even make history. I want to fight for a better world like that Negro man who was killed, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., whom my family much admired. I want my life to make a difference. My Utah grandparents always say we need to leave the world a better place than when we found it. That's what I want to do. I want to make the world a better place. I looked up to see my aunt's eyes welling up with tears. In an almost desperate attempt to bring me back, she whispered, There is no greater thing you can give the world than to raise happy children in a loving home. But I was so intoxicated with the power she had just bestowed on me that I barely heard her words as they trailed off. Maybe I'll go back to Russia and find our family and sneak them into Canada. At that time, I didn't understand what it meant that we had stopped hearing from them, that Stalin and Dzerzhinsky had undoubtedly murdered them during the purges. When I looked up again, my aunt's eyes had filled with tears. Not for our family. Those tears she shed in private moments. No, she was crying for me. For my future suffering that she could not prevent. Interesting lives can be hard. She sang the word hard like the lamenting lyrics of a Negro spiritual. Hard and lonely, she said again, knowing she had already lost me, knowing I had chosen my fate and she would never dissuade me. She gave me a big hug and said, you are a very special boy, Bazik, and I will always love you very much. 
When you need a break or a rest from changing the world, you know you are always welcome here. Wrapped in a homemade quilt, both of us 50 years older, she turned to me and asked, So? How was it? It's been hard and lonely, I know. I've been watching. But I've been so proud of you, Bazik, and so sad for you. But tell me, tell me in your own words, what was that like? Do you regret your choice, she asked. For 50 years, I had been preparing my answer to this question. As a young man, I fantasized a grandiose recap of a glorious life. But over the years, my difficulties had mounted, and my disappointments had been many. On the red-eye flight from New York, I had spent the night rehearsing a much more humbled response. Pick any decade of my life, and I have lived more in those ten years than most people live in a lifetime. I've traveled the world, lived in 19 cities and 6 countries, I've been to over 50 countries, I've worked with heads of state, including the last Prime Minister of the Soviet Union, and a couple of Central Asian presidents like Nazarbayev of Kazakhstan. I even accidentally kidney-punched one of my political heroes, President Jimmy Carter. He and I had a good laugh about it later. But you were right. You were right about everything. I've had a hard life. There were some amazing moments. I've been blessed. But mostly, it was hard and lonely, just like you said. Sometimes, I feel like the last man standing. Only a couple of my friends from my 20s and 30s are still alive. The rest all died of AIDS. On my 30th birthday, Mum called me crying. Not that uncommon for a Russian mother, I humorously editorialized. When I asked her what was wrong, she said, My youngest son has buried more people he loved at 30 than I have in my 60s, and I lived through a world war. But do I regret it? No. I can't regret it, because I had no choice. My generation of gays had to fight. This was the life I had to live, and I don't regret it at all. Mostly, I feel grateful to have been given an opportunity to make a difference. I played a very small but not entirely insignificant role in bringing down the Soviet Union. It was so intense translating for the last Prime Minister of the Soviet Union, Valentin Pavlov. He held the reins of the government that murdered our family. But he loved me. It was really weird. He even introduced me to the last Soviet ambassador to the United Nations as his new friend with Zalitia Ruki, the Golden Touch. What he didn't know is he's the only person I ever fantasized about killing. You know me. I'm a gentleman, and I could never do anything like that. But I couldn't help it. One question just kept playing over and over in my head. How many murders would this monster be responsible for throughout the course of his career? I had to remind myself, if he were gone, there was a cadre of Soviet monsters just as evil as him, willing to kill to take his place. My boyfriend was the hero of the revolution that ended communism in Russia. His picture was on the cover of every newspaper and TV news show on Earth. 
I knew that made him a target, and I begged him to leave Russia. But he didn't think he was in danger. He told me it's okay to be gay in the new Russia. We're finally safe here. I tried to make him understand Russia doesn't have gay heroes. But he wouldn't listen. That same night, he was disappeared and presumably tortured and murdered in Nubyanka prison. Trying to lighten the mood, I joked, I can't say I much like what Putin's done with the place since I left, but I'm proud to have played my very small part in healing Russia. But my life's work, and the thing I'm most proud of, is being a gay rights and AIDS activist. When all my friends were dying of AIDS and I held their hands to say goodbye, they always made me promise one of two things, either to live for them or to keep fighting for them. With my army of gay angels beside me, sometimes I felt like I inherited all their good fortune, as if the universe had given me all the best parts of the lives they never got to live, as if my dead friend's legacy to me was fulfilling that first promise I made to them. I've had such a full, rich life. I've seen so many beautiful places and met some truly amazing people. I was Princess Diana's personal waiter for her dress auction in New York at Christie's. I got to watch as that sainted princess single-handedly changed the way the world saw those of us living with HIV. She was magnificent, and I will always love her for it. But I focused on keeping my second promise, on keeping up the fight. Mum taught me how to play politics, and I was a damn good lobbyist. I helped pass state legislation that paid for HIV and AIDS medication, hate crime bills, even recognition of gay rights. Everyone told me it was impossible to get these bills passed in Utah, America's most conservative state. But we did it. I may have had to expose a few skeletons, call in a few family favors, and threaten a couple of senators to make it happen, but Utah was one of only two conservative states that never lost funding for HIV medication on my watch. Once that was done, we pushed through federal laws to pay for HIV meds. Those bills saved countless lives and helped change the world for our community in America, and maybe even around the world. When I think about it, though, I guess all I ever wanted was for America to be a bit more like Canada. Canada so gracefully embodies the ideals of diversity, inclusion, and just plain human decency that America sometimes pretends to aspire to. But God, it was hard, heartbreaking, and lonely work. We fought them kicking and screaming with their hateful epithets and lies, even our president and my own brother joked for years that gays deserved what they got when we died of AIDS. But look how far we've come. Look what we've accomplished in just one generation. Gay straight, the kids today, they don't care. It's a total non-issue to them, like having brown eyes or blue. The very fact that they can take gay rights so completely for granted is proof of what an amazing job we did. Like John Quincy Adams said, I have to study politics and war so that my sons can study mathematics, commerce, and agriculture, so their sons can study poetry, painting, 
and music. I did what I had to do. We all did what had to be done so the next generation of gays can do whatever the hell they want. And it's okay if they don't know what it took to get us here. I know. And my army of angels? They know. No, I don't regret it at all. I'm really proud of the life I led. Though, for the time I have left, I do wish I could have the life you wanted for me. So maybe I do have that one small regret. I deserve a little more happiness to wrap things up. I could see she was tired, and I was being selfish with her precious time. There were so many things left unsaid. But she already knew everything. She had always known everything. And she had been watching. I love you, Aunt Kira. Thank you. How can mere words ever thank you for what you've meant to me on this journey? I've been so blessed having you in my life. We all have. I thanked my cousin, walked back down those soggy wooden steps through the sweet-smelling garden, and crossed the street to the old brick schoolhouse on the other side. Once I was out of sight, I sat down on the mossy stone fence, and through tears of joy, sorrow, and gratitude, I watched as happy children played in the schoolyard beyond. My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this day.